We're back in Matthew's Gospel this morning. We put the readings on the sheets because at the moment we're not allowed to, to hand out Bibles, uh, I'm afraid. Uh, but with Matthew and the end of chapter 17, verse 24, uh, you might remember if you've been here the last couple of weeks, uh, we're just after the transfiguration. So last week Jesus was up the mountain, or two weeks ago, um, uh, and he, he, he was shone, till, do you remember he shone bright white uh, with glory? Uh, that was two weeks ago we looked at that. Then last week, uh, on the way down, we saw that he had to deal with the unbelief of his people uh, who couldn't drive out the demon from the, the, the little boy. Uh, so that's where we pick up the action this morning. Matthew 17, verse 24. Let's hear the Spirit's voice. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up uh, to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or, or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, From others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offence to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a millstone, a great millstone, fastened around his neck, and be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown in the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Amen. Uh, one of the strange but comforting truths of the Bible is that God is more keen to bless us than we are to be blessed. God is more keen to get us into paradise uh, than we are to be there. And we see that right from the beginning of the story. Uh, the Bible begins, uh, as, as many of you will know, with God. With God, just God. Uh, he is happy. Uh, he doesn't lack anything. Uh, he doesn't need friends. He doesn't need worshippers. He is just there, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And yet he creates. Uh, and why does he do so? Uh, not for his sake, ultimately. He doesn't need worshippers. Uh, he doesn't need servants. Uh, he creates out of love in order that we might share in his glory, we might see his glory, we might know him, we might experience the joy of knowing him and living in this paradise earth that he created. But we threw it back in his face. Adam and Eve in his paradise garden uh, take the one fruit that God put off limits. And Satan tempts them and says to them, look, it would be better for you if you took that fruit. You'd be like God. Things could be better, they say. And so they take the fruit. And everything falls apart. They ruin paradise. But God's response isn't just to, to throw them out, to leave them forever. And throughout the Old Testament, we see in various 
ways, at various stages, his, his attempts and his plans to gather them back. Now we see him rescue his people out of slavery in Egypt. But what happens? They grumble. And they've been slaves building houses for Pharaoh. God rescues them. The plagues through the Red Sea. And what do they do? They get in, they get out, finally safe, and they grumble. Well, we had cucumbers in Israel. And he gets them into the paradise land, this promised land of Canaan. And what happens? Well, all's well for a very brief period. But then again, they, they, they trash it. They throw it back in his face. They worship other gods. But still, God keeps going. His grace doesn't run out. He pursues his people. He shows this covenant love, this steadfast love, as it's often called right, in the Bible. And that culminates with God's Son coming to earth, coming to rescue us. And this is what we've been thinking about these last couple of weeks. It's really important we understand what's happened just before our reading this morning, because it, it really sets the, the context for understanding rightly the commands that come to us. As I said earlier, we, uh, we've just uh, had that, that key incident where Peter, for the first time, has recognised that Jesus is the Son of God. Uh, in Matthew 16, uh, Peter confesses, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, and Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon. Okay, you've got it, Simon Peter. And then Jesus starts to explain that, that his mission is to die for us, to die for our sins. And he says effectively to, to Peter and the other disciples, I have come to die. I'm going to take the sin that is on your shoulders and put it on my own shoulders. And I'm going to go to the cross and I am going to die for you. And that way, bringing the kingdom. And Peter says, no, don't do it. Far be it from you. And do you remember how Jesus responds? Get behind me, Satan. It's satanic to say to me, don't go to the cross, says Jesus to Peter. That is the work of Satan. It is Satan who wants to prevent me from going to the cross. Because it is Satan who does not want God's plan to bless his people to succeed. Just as Satan ruined the first paradise... Well, so Satan tries to ruin the plan to restore the world to a new paradise. And this time through Peter. But the key thing for us this morning is what Jesus says next. He said, get behind me, Satan. And then he says to Peter, you are a, well, in our version, if we had the ESV on our laps, it says you are a hindrance. Literally, you are a stumbling block to me, Peter. Children know what a stumbling block is. Imagine it's sports day at school, you're running 100 metres, you're going as fast as you can, and someone puts a big rock okay, in your track, and you go tripping over it. Stops you getting to your goal. That's what you're doing to me, Peter, says Jesus. You're a stumbling block, trying to stop my plan, okay, the plan of God, to rescue people, to bless them, to bring them to paradise. Jesus perseveres, obviously. Uh, the next thing, they go up the mountain, it's a transfiguration, and, and Peter's at it again. Let's stay here in glory, let's make tents, let's set up camp on the mountain. It's as if Satan has crept up the mountain too. Let's stay here, this is the kingdom of Jesus. Never mind all that cross stuff now, look how bright you are, look how glorious you are. We've got Moses and Elijah, it's going to be great. Still he hasn't got it. But Jesus heads on, Jesus knows. His desire will not be stopped. And then in Matthew 18, at the end of 17 and 18, the stuff we're looking at now and over the next couple of weeks. We come to, we come to a central passage about the church. Matthew 18 and 16 are the only two places in the whole of the Gospels that talk about church, use the word church explicitly. And what we're going to see is that Satan's plan to put a stumbling block in the way of the cross 
now that it's failing, is replaced with a plan to put stumbling blocks all around the church instead. If you can't stop the king, he'll try and stop the kingdom. If you can't ruin the king, he'll try and ruin the kingdom. And that's why on your sheet, uh, where we printed the reading at, you'll see that a number of phrases are in bold and underlined. I'm sorry, it's not much help for you at, at home, unless you've got the service sheet in front of you. But the reason that those passages are in bold, or those phrases are in bold and underlined, is that each of those phrases is actually the same word in Greek. It's either the, the, the word for a stumbling block, the noun, if you like, the thing, the stumbling block, or a verb, the verb to, to stumbling block someone, to cause someone to stumble. It's literally the word scandal, a bit like we got our word scandal from. And, and slightly, slightly annoyingly, <laughs> from my point of view, it's translated in different ways in the SV. And that's why I've highlighted it. Um, so we know that it's the same word all the way through. And you see, just by looking at the, the, the piece of paper, you can see what a key theme it is. Peter was a stumbling block in chapter 16. And that stumbling block theme is back at the end of 17 and through 18. Uh, so let's dive in. Uh, we're going to be seeing that our, our desire to avoid the cross uh, is matched by our, our desire to avoid, sorry, to avoid the cross in, in the gospel. It's going to be matched by our desire to avoid the cross in discipleship. That's the warning this morning. Don't avoid the cross in discipleship. But we start not with the disciples, but with the king, uh, with the king's service. Let's look at the king's service first. This is chapter 17, verses 24 uh, to the end. Uh, down the mountain, they come to Capernaum, and the tax men come. Now, now these aren't the government tax officials. This aren't the Romans, um, like Levi, you know, the, the, the tax collector. These are the, the church uh, tax collectors. Okay, this is Dom over there, our church treasurer. This is Dom coming around, knocking on your door, saying, look, uh, it's time to pay Zach and uh, John T and Hannah. Cough up, okay? You've got to pay rent on the building. We need your tax. Uh, this is a tax that, that went to support the temple. And not, not the kind of governing authorities. So this isn't your income tax, this is your, your church giving tax, if you like. Uh, it's, it's not exactly a tax that's laid out in the Old Testament, there are sort of origins of it there, but it's something that the, the, the Jewish people have come up with to maintain the work of the temple. And they asked Peter, look, is Jesus going to pay this tax? Okay, two, two, uh, two coins. And Peter answers straight away, yes. Peter often answers very quickly without particularly thinking about things. Yes, he says. And when he goes inside, Jesus knows what's been going on, so he says, think about it, Peter. Uh, who do the kings of the earth charge taxes to? Uh, if you're the king, does your son pay tax? Now, a few years ago in England, there was a bit of a scandal about that, wasn't there? And it came out that Prince Charles really does pay tax, actually, and so does the queen. It's because we live in a parliamentary democracy, it doesn't quite work the same way. But in a country where there's an absolute monarch, you know, like, the, like Brunei, you know, the sovereign Brunei nowadays, well, the princes, no, they don't pay tax. Because the, why? It's their kingdom. Or rather, it's their dad's kingdom. It's not owned by the people, it's owned by the king. And if you want to live in it, well, you pay me tax. So no, of course kings don't charge tax to their sons. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm free from paying tax. So he means, but the sons are free. The sons of the kings are free, they don't have to pay tax. Why would I pay tax to support my own house, my father's house? This whole temple is about worshipping me. Of course I'm not obliged to pay for my own house. Children, do your mum and dad ever charge you rent? You know, Monday morning they say, look, you've slept in my house for seven days now, I want 20 quid from each of you, and if you want breakfast, it'll be 25. Well, no, they don't do that, of course they don't. 
Why? Well, it's your house. You are part of the family. But we understand this. Jesus doesn't need to pay the tax. He's free from the tax. But he does pay. Why? Verse 27, you see? However, so as not to give offence. And it's that stumbling block word. So as not to be a stumbling block. Well, go and pull out the fish and you'll find a coin. It's a very strange miracle, isn't it? I don't really know what to think about the miracle. Um, it's confused people for centuries. It's just odd. <laughs> I mean, it showed Jesus' power. You know, what, why he did it that way? No idea. Why not pay out of the kind of collection pot? No idea. But the, the focus is really, isn't really on the miracle. We don't get the account of the miracle, we just get the instructions. Go and fish and it'll be fine. But the focus rather is on this stumbling block. Jesus is saying, I have every right not to pay. If I did just the right thing, no tax, nothing for me. But I'm not going to stand on my rights. I am going to give up my rights in order not to be a stumbling block to other people. Now, he doesn't expand on that, does he? He doesn't quite explain how he might be a stumbling block. But presumably, what, what, he, what he's getting at is that if, if he doesn't pay the tax, that then, then others might start to disbelieve his message. That might put people off from trusting him. Perhaps they'll think he's somehow not into the temple, and God set up the temple, so he's some sort of false teacher. Perhaps they'll think he's some sort of revolutionary, he's trying to overthrow the system and just sort of shy away. But who knows quite. But clearly he thinks that not paying the tax is going to put people off believing him. It'll be putting a rock in their path to coming to faith. And so he gives up his rights, for the sake of others. That's the king's service. He doesn't want to scandalize, he doesn't want to put people off. And of course, that's just one little picture of the gospel, isn't it? And the whole gospel is about Jesus, the Son of God, giving up his rights, coming down, doing what he didn't need to do in order to rescue you and me. Remember, it's not Jesus' job to save us, and not ultimately. He wasn't obliged to. That once Adam and Eve fell, once we rebelled against God, there was no obligation on the Son of God to, to come and rescue, as if that's what he had to do now. If your house is set on fire, the firemen have to come and rescue you. That's just what they're obliged to do. If you're a fireman, and your worst enemy's house is on fire, you've just got to go and put it out, haven't you? You don't, you don't get to make the call. It's just, that's what you're contracted to do. And then praise God for them, for their bravery. It's their job. Not so with Jesus. The gospel is free. He was under no obligation to come and save you. No obligation to become a man. He could have done the right thing, stayed in heaven, and cast all of us into judgment. This horrifying judgment of which he speaks. It's so hard for us to get this into our heads that actually it would have been fine, right, perfectly just, perfectly okay for Jesus to have done that. For God not to have sent his son. And that's why we talk about the gospel being a grace. It's a gift. It's not deserved. It's not earned. No, it's about the son of God, not counting equality with God, something to be grasped, to use the language of Philippians 2, but humbling himself, taking the form of a servant and humbling himself even to death on the cross for you and me. See this theme continuing that we picked up in the last few weeks? He is so committed to save us. He'll give up his rights in order to go to the cross. And on the way, he'll give up all sorts of other little rights, like the right not to pay tax, 
in order that people might believe in the cross. That's the king's service. And the king is setting the pattern for the kingdom. So if that's the king's service, then the rest of the passage, chapter 18, verses 1 through 9, is all about kingdom service. What does it mean to follow a king like this? What is a church that is built by a king like this going to look like? First of all, he deals with the issue of status. They're amazing. The disciples come and they start to find who's the most important. Jesus, we've got a question. Okay, we're just wondering. Which one of us is top dog in your kingdom? Uh, verse 1. Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Okay, Peter's maybe thinking, well, it's probably me, isn't it, Jesus? You know, I'm your closest friend. I'm the one who got it right at your identity. Maybe I get the top job. Andrew's thinking, well, I was called first. I was in first. I got it first. Maybe, probably me, isn't it, top? Judas is thinking, well, I'm the treasurer. It's the most important job after being the boss. So. And Jesus says, stop it. First, he calls a child to him. And so they can look at this child. And he says, verse 3, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, like this child, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. You want to understand what it is to, to be a Christian. It's to be a child to Jesus. And what's he doing? Is he, is he looking at children and, and seeing some virtues in them, some, some things that the children are just great at, that adults are rubbish at, and saying, well, you need to get back to your childish ways. Children are so innocent, children are so pure, children are so humble, children... No, I don't think so. Okay. Children, I'm afraid, it's true, isn't it? Uh, you are just the same as adults. Okay? We've all got the same problems, we're all sinful. Rather, Jesus is talking about status. Uh, certainly in his day, Okay, the culture around him. Children were just little people. They, they were useless. They were drained. They weren't important. They weren't significant. No one cared what they thought. They're in a culture that probably values children a little bit more highly, at least in some ways. But not particularly in the first century. In fact, the same word used for a child is often used for a, a servant. Just the little people. Now, Jesus is saying you need to think of yourself as the least significant in the room, and not the most significant. Uh, the way up in the kingdom is the way down. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a, a book called The Great Divorce. It's like an odd book in all sorts of ways. Um, but at one point, the, 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 the narrator, he, he sort of travels to heaven, uh, as it were, and, and sees, uh, sees into heaven. It's obviously fi fiction. And he gets this particular view of this woman who comes in this amazing procession. And so he says this, he's talking with this guy who's an sort of angel. First came bright spirits, not the spirits of men, uh, who dance and scatter flowers. Then on the left and right, at each side of the forest avenue, came youthful shapes, boys upon one hand, girls on the other. If I could remember their singing and write down their notes, no man who's read that score would ever grow sick or old. Between them went musicians, and after these, a lady in whose honour all this was being done. Here's this amazing procession. Okay, spirits dancing, boys and girls rejoicing, and this lady who is the centre uh, of the honour. And the race goes on. Is it, is it, I whispered to my guide, I think he's thinking, is, is that Mary? This is clearly so very important. Is that Mary, the mother of Jesus? Is that... Not at all, said the angel. It's someone you'll never have heard of. Her name on earth was Sarah Smith, and she lived at Golders Green. She seems to be a person of particular importance. I, she's one of the great ones. 
You've heard that fame in this country and fame on earth are two quite different things. That is the point. Who's this one who's great in the kingdom of heaven? Sarah Smith from Golders Green. John Smith from Horsford. Who's he? No one in the eyes of the world, but a great one in the eyes of the kingdom of God. A great one in the eyes of heaven. And he goes on to explain this, this is a woman who was nothing in the eyes of the world, but she reached out with the gospel to her neighbour. She cared for the children in need on the street. She... How do you think of yourself when you come to church, when you gather with God's people? Uh, what is your concern? Uh, is it for the high and impressive or the lowly, the nobodies? Desire to be unknown, that said one early theologian. Desire to be unknown, not to seek glory. If you're thinking, how can I be greater? Uh, how can I be more significant, more important? Just ask the wrong question. Greatness is about service, because that's what the greatest of all did. If Jesus, the king, gave up all his rights in order to save us and serve us, well, how can we not do likewise? And this status is worked out in service. Uh, you see verse uh, uh, 5? Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. If you get that you are lowly, get that you're a nobody, or you're willing to serve and receive the nobodies. And the first application, I think, is a very literal one to children. Uh, our attitude to children. Grown-ups are our attitude to children, that is. Uh, perhaps you're on the, you know, the children's teaching rotor when we can do those things again. Do you ever feel the temptation? Well, it's only children. They're only four, five. I'll, I'll prepare this in five minutes flat. Print a quick colouring sheet off the internet. Uh, skim through the Bible passage. Yeah, no worries at all. Whereas if we were leading home group or community group, or being asked to do a talk at a prayer meeting or whatever it might be in front of grown-ups, well, then we make an effort because we want to look good in, in, in front of the eyes of the world. But children's work... Ah, bash that out in 10 minutes. Well, that's not receiving children like they're Christ. That's treating them as if they're not as important. But I think the extension goes beyond just children literally. You see how Jesus starts to speak about little, little ones. Uh, little ones will be a, a phrase that comes up throughout chapter 18. I think he means more than just children. It's little ones who believe in him. Our concern for those who are little in the eyes of the world or shows how much we've really grasped the cross or not. When we understand that we, in the eyes of God, are little ones, then it takes away any pride, any thinking that I'm too important to deal with the worldly little ones. Now, I don't know who each of us might think of as the little ones in, in the congregation at Christ Central. It's horrible times with whether we are a third of the church here this morning, uh, a few more online, God willing. Uh, others earlier in the service, in the first service. But, but it's like as we get to know people, there'll be some people we're naturally drawn to, and perhaps that we want to impress, and others that we're just not so concerned about. Maybe they're a bit odd and not much fun to chat to, at least as we see it. Maybe they're a bit awkward and difficult and needy, and we just want to pull away. And... But it's how you treat the little ones is reflective of whether you've got the gospel or not, Jesus is saying. And ultimately, you're receiving me, verse 5. If you receive them in my name, you're receiving me. This is a bit of a stupid example, but there's a, there's a 
There's a child, he's a lovely Scooby-Doo cartoon, you see what's face? I think they're still going, aren't they? At the end of it, it the, the, the villain, the, 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 the ghost or the witch or whatever it was, they'd always, they'd always pull the mask off and it'd be, oh, it's Mr. You know, Mr. Jones who runs the fun fair or whatever. Someone else underneath. If, if you serve children, if you serve people who you would not naturally be drawn to, if you serve people who your sinful self says are below you, you just pull a mask off. No, you're serving Jesus. Treat them as you would treat Christ. And the rest of the, the passage is really a warning that if we won't do that, let's see how verse uh, 5 uh, goes on. Beginning verse 6, in fact. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, there's that causing to stumble word again. It'd be better for him to have a great millstone, literally a donkey's millstone, the kind of stone that a donkey would have to pull to turn around, to ground, uh, grind the grain. It'd be better to have that fastened around his neck to be drowned in the deepest part of the sea. If you're not willing to serve those below you in your own eyes, the danger is you're going to cause them to stumble. I don't think here that the point is it's quite kind of causing people to sin as if, you know, cause them to drink or cause them or drink too much, sorry, or cause them to blaspheme. It's, it's, it's not here if you take your um, friend to the betting shop and get him to waste all his money, then you've caused him to sin. It's not that kind of thing. If you take your friend to watch a movie you know you shouldn't watch, or it's full of sort of bad images while you're causing him to sin, so rather the focus is a bit tighter. It's if you become a stumbling block. I think the idea is if, if the way that you treat people causes people to, to not end up believing the gospel. If you put stumbling blocks in front of these little people that, that mean that they don't believe, well, that could be chucked in the depth of the ocean. That's how horrific that thing would be. That action would be. You can see how pride does that. A lack of humility, a lack of willing to think of ourselves as, as, as lowly. If we give the impression that the church and Christ's kingdom is all about being great, we're obscuring the gospel, putting stumbling blocks all over, rocks in the path of everybody who might otherwise believe. Because we're beginning to say, well, if that's what the kingdom is like, about trying to be great and important, well, maybe that's what the king is like. Maybe that's what the gospel is all about. Puffing ourselves up, earning our way. And we obscure the true Christ. <coughs> we lead them away from trust in a crucified saviour. And we act as if we're great, rather than sinners who've been saved by a great saviour. And that's why this passage historically is often applied to false teaching. If we if we teach a message that causes others to sin, as is particularly verses 7 through 9, woe to the world for temptations, stumbling blocks again. For it's necessary that stumbling blocks come, but woe to the one by whom the stumbling block comes. If you lead people away, just as Peter tried to stop Jesus going to the cross, if you lead people away from believing in the Christ who went to the cross. You're doing the same thing as Peter when he tried to stop Jesus in the first place. You too are becoming a stumbling block. I think therefore in verse 8, when the focus becomes more on ourselves, the same theme continues. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. Or verse 9, if your eye causes you to stumble. Again, it's not, it's not the same here as the Sermon on the Mount earlier in Matthew's Gospel. Where Jesus had talked about you know, adultery, and if your eye 
sorry, if you, um, uh, if you lust after someone, it's the same as committing adultery. Uh, if you covet, it's the same as stealing. If you get angry, it's the same as murdering. And there he said, you know, if anything causes you to sin, cut it off. So that message remains true. But, but here it's a bit more specific. Anything that's going to lead you not to trust in this crucified Saviour, any stumbling blocks in your life that are going to cause you to stumble in your quest to trust Jesus, to believe in the crucified Christ, get rid of them. And get rid of them in your own life, partly for your own sake, obviously, but partly also because if they're in your own life, you're going to corrupt others too. I think that's the link between verses 7 and 8. Don't cause other people to stumble, and therefore get rid of anything in your own life that's going to cause you to stumble. Can you think what in your own life is most likely to draw you away from the cross, draw you away from Christ crucified? It could be your own success. You start to think you are somebody because you're doing well at work, well at uni, whatever it might be. It could be a relationship. You're so drawn to that person, someone who doesn't trust Christ, who thinks the whole thing's ridiculous, that, that actually your heart is beginning to be tugged away. Cut it out, says Jesus. Think long term, think of eternity. They're hard words, aren't they? But he speaks in verse 8 about eternal fire, or verse 9 about the hell of fire. Jesus is the most loving man who ever lived, but he speaks about hell. Or rather, Andy speaks about hell. It is loving for him to do so because he wants to warn us it is real. It is eternal. Hell is eternal. It doesn't end. And it is horrific. I don't know the details. I don't know what his picture language and what exactly is the experience of it. But, but, but eternal fire is terrifying. How awful would it be if the way we treated others caused them to end up there? Because we're putting stumbling blocks in their way by our haughtiness, our lack of love, our distortion of the gospel in our words or in our actions. How awful if something drew us away from Christ. I think here is the language of the uh, parable of the sower, where, where some, things, some, some seed begins but then gets drawn away. How awful that would be if anything in your life is going to draw you away from Christ. Cut it out. It might mean short-term pain, it might mean short-term loss, but it's worth it. It's worth it for the glories that are to come. So you see as we close, the tone of the passage is a warning one. Woe to the world, verse 7, when these stumbling blocks come. It warns us not to be a stumbling block and to get rid of the stumbling blocks in our lives. To humble ourselves in order that we don't uh, distract others. But ultimately, all of this is because Jesus wants a path clear in order to save people. It's all just speaking to his desire to fill heaven with men, women, and children. He overcame all the stumbling blocks we put in his way. Peter, the disciples, the Romans, Pilate, Judas, every stumbling block he came through in order that he might go to the cross and die for you. And now he's trying to clear his kingdom of stumbling blocks in order that more people might be saved. Don't ever doubt that God desires to rescue you. Now the cross says that Christ was willing to give up everything, give his life in order that you and I might be saved. It was unnecessary for him. It wasn't his duty, but he's driven by love. And that is the love that he wants at the church to share as we treat one another and as we go out to the world around.
Let's pray uh, for the Holy Spirit to do that work in us. Our Father, we thank you so much uh, that right from the beginning you've been building paradise, uh, building heaven in order that we might live there. And we thank you that although we constantly put these stumbling blocks in the, in the path, although we trip over them ourselves and cause others to do likewise, still uh, you pursue us with your steadfast love. Uh, Lord Jesus, we praise you that you ignored Peter, that you conquered Satan, that you went to the cross. Uh, that though even those that you were trying to save uh, were attempting to stop you, still you love them and still you conquered. And so we pray that you would form us in your image and make your kingdom like uh, you the king, we pray. And we pray so much that you would reveal to us where there are stumbling blocks in our own lives, to un- uh, block, stumbling blocks that would lead us to, to unbelief, uh, enable us to be ruthless cutting them out, seeing the surpassing worth of knowing you and the terrors of hell. And for Venice, we, we are so much for being stumbling blocks to others. We know we are sinful, we know we are weak, but prevent us from ever putting obstacles in others' paths to salvation. Make us men and women of the gospel in our lips, but our lives as well. And rescue many in this city of Leeds, we pray. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.